15 of our podcast, Pitchside Experts, and once again joined happily by our colleagues, uh, Tom Moody, or my colleagues, Tom Moody and Freddie Wild. Gentlemen, uh, I'd say good morning to Freddie and good evening to you, Tom. How are you? Yeah, well, thanks, Bish, and uh, hi to Freddie. Uh, yeah, I'm well, thank you. I'm slowly preparing for uh, my uh, first trip on an aeroplane for many, many months because of obvious circumstances, but I'm heading to the Caribbean for the Caribbean Premier League, which will be starting up in August. Ready? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. And uh, exciting to hear that T20 cricket is on the horizon. Obviously, it's been good to have some test matches on in the last few weeks, but um, I'm looking forward to the return of T20 and the CPL. Uh, it'll keep me entertained in the evenings here. And of course, today, that's partly what we're going to be talking about, constructing a T20 bowling attack, which I find fascinating in itself because I have the privilege of being joined, as many people will know, by one of the foremost analytics programmers or inputs into T20 cricket. And of course, Tom Moody has coached at franchise level for many, many years. So I think this will be intriguing. And the starting point for us all, I suppose, is when people are asking the question about constructing a T20 bowling attack, uh, let me start with Coach Moody. Um, how are you phasing that from the power play, those initial six overs? What are your thought processes? Well, I think it, there's many, many things that need to be considered. Uh, first and foremost, you need to consider where you're playing. Uh, let's say it's at home. You need to have a good understanding of how the surface that you're playing on behaves. How does it behave with a new ball? Is it uh, a venue that allows for early swing? We know with the white ball, there's only a limited window for swing. So is there that is that window available? Um, what type of bounce? Does it turn with a new ball or does it skid on with a new ball? So there's many, many things you need to consider uh, with regards to conditions. And then from day to day, that can change because you have overhead conditions that can suddenly throw a curveball where you might have overcast conditions and it may swing a little bit more on that given day than it has done in every other previous day. Um, and then you need to consider what uh, your attack consists of. What, what is your strengths? Uh, and then you then make your decisions on on your approach from there. So, look, I don't think there's any particular given formula, as in spin versus pace. Uh, I think both can be very effective, particularly when you're talking at the pointy end of elite T20 bowlers. Both have a place in the first six overs and deserve a place in the first six overs and are equally effective. But you do need to take into consideration all those other things, which the other one, which I haven't mentioned, is the opposition. Who are you bowling to? You know, is it a left-hander? Is it a right-hander? Is it someone that is potentially a little bit vulnerable against pace or maybe a little bit vulnerable against spin or left-arm spin against right-arm spin? So there's many things which I'm for sure Freddie will expand on. Well, yeah, I mean, just in terms of how the analyst comes into that, a lot of the questions that uh, Moods has just posed, we will be able to answer using numbers. 
Um, you know, wh whether pace or spin is more effective. You talk about opposition batsmen and matchups. Does the ball swing? Um, how the pitch behaves? A lot of those things, or in fact, all of those things, we will be able to look at the numbers and essentially there'll be a back and forth between the coach and, and the analyst and, and the other decision makers involved. Um, and there'll also be some things which we can't quite quantify and the things that are sort of intangibles that on the day, um, you know, the, the, the moods and the captain might go and have a look at the, the pitch itself and think this might be a bit too paced. Or, and there are other elements that we obviously um, can't always put a number on. But it's the combination of all those things coming together. Um, and moods, moods is right. There's a huge number of factors at play. And it's about weighing them all up and trying to piece together um, your best attack. I mean, I think fundamentally, you know, when we're sort of, there are sort of two elements to this. One is almost at the auction table or in the draft room when you're picking your players for the first time, and then there's also selection on the day. Um, and I think the stuff that you, know, you, you sort of set yourself up to try and give yourself as many options as possible when you're at the auction or at the draft, and then if you've done that well, hopefully um, the sort of match day stuff making sure you've got the right attack should fit into place quite nicely on the day. It's about giving yourself options, I think. Um, as we'll talk about today, the innings changes in nature drastically through the different phases and at different venues and against different op opponents. And I think, personally, um, I find the key to a strong bowling attack is giving yourself a number of options to be able to adapt to those different situations. One of the, the great questions, Freddie, and I know you, you had a feeler out there, earlier this week was whether or not as a as a unit you're looking to take wickets in that first over because as you know there are a lot of discussions and narratives around that first over of a t20 innings or whether you're looking to take wickets or sneak and over in where do you guys sit on that just i'll just attribute that actually to someone who's someone i talked to a fair bit on twitter a guy called kieran who who he, he believes that the way that you approach that first over sums up your entire approach as a bowling side. I'm not sure whether that's quite the case, but it's an interesting perspective. For example, um, the Melbourne Renegades, someone I've worked with, a team I've worked with in the past, uh, often considered quite a sort of defensive bowling unit. They try and sneak, they've in, historically tried to sneak an overthrow with someone like Tom Cooper. Now, Tom Cooper isn't necessarily a wicket taker. He's someone who's going to try and get an overthrow for four or five runs. On the flip side, a team like Lahore Calanders, for example, opened the bowling with Shaheen Shah Afridi, who basically is pitching it up and looking for wickets. They are two very different philosophies in terms of approaching the first over that he at least believes sums up how you go about your whole innings. Because that first over is when the ball is swinging the most. It's almost the t period of time when you, batsmen are most vulnerable. But if you're looking to sneak an over through, this sort of suggests you're maybe trying to run save rather than protect wickets. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's an interesting thought. Yeah, look, I, I think uh, the Melbourne Renegades example um, is more to do with Tom Cooper is one of those ideal batsman part-time bowlers that you can steal an over which you feel will benefit you, not so much in that very first over, but will benefit you as the innings unfolds because you've, you've stolen an over. So from a captaincy point of view, it gives you a little bit more flexibility with your attack if one of your main bowlers is, for whatever reason, is having a day off. He doesn't have to complete his set of four. Um, my personal view is when the ball is new, you've got to give it to the person that is best equipped to get movement. To me, the first six overs is about movement, whether it's swing or whether it's spin, because they're 
they're the uh, the two variables that create uncertainty and gives you the best chance of taking wickets. To me, in the first six overs, you're destined to go for runs because that is the mandate of your opposition. But if you focus too much on trying to protect your position on the runs front, you miss the opportunities to take wickets. And I think the value of wickets outweighs the, the fact that you may go for a few boundaries. So I'd much rather be trying to set up that first over or the first six overs uh, with an attacking approach, knowing that if I've got two or three in the bag after six overs, we're in a very strong position to control this innings. And I'm not saying that at any stage, maybe at the fifth over or the sixth over in particular, you don't go complete defensive because quite often that is a sound approach is just to exit the power play with as a, with a, a limited amount of damage, knowing that you've cre- ho- hopefully created opportunities in those first four overs. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've all heard the stats about um, if you take three wickets in the power play, you win, I think, 75% of games. That's essentially uh, a statistic that, I suppose in many respects it's obvious, but the point of it and why it's so regularly referenced is that early wickets are exceptionally valuable. And I think this is a key theme throughout a T20 innings is understanding that as the innings progresses, um, and we've got a a nice bar chart at at CrickViz that I'll post out on Twitter actually along with this podcast that shows the value of a wicket relatively through the innings in runs. So if you take a Mm. wicket in the first over, on average, you reduce the opposition's total by around 10 runs. And as the Mm. innings goes through, that curve obviously goes down and down and down. And essentially it shows that the earlier the wicket is taken, the more valuable it is. And I suppose, interestingly, it suggests that as as the innings goes on, the less attacking you should become in a way, because at that point, as the innings goes on and on, it becomes more important simply to protect runs than to take wickets. And that's why um, it's very useful to look at um, certain statistics by phase. And for me as an analyst, one statistic that's very useful is just simply strike rate in the power play. So how often does a bowler take wickets in the first six overs? Um, And guys who do that are very valuable. And off the top of my head, guys who are good at that, People like David Willey, who's a swing bowler, who's always found good shape. Jason Berendorf, Deepak Chahar more recently. These are guys who pitch the ball up and, as Mood said, look for movement and try and take wickets because they're so valuable. And then towards the back end, and we'll come on to this later, you're not so interested in bowlers like that. And that's why guys like Willey, Berendorf, Mohamed Irfan is another one who only bowls really early on. Their defensive skills are not so good. Um, they often bowl sort of length balls, looking the ball to swing. Now, at the death, that's a dangerous ball to bowl. Um, that's when you turn to your slower ball bowlers and your Yorker bowlers because you're focused on run saving. And that chart, the value of a wicket by over, is absolutely integral to sort of everything that happens. And whilst we might not, you know, players might not think about the chart itself, that is essentially the calculations that are going on in their head when they're trying to make bowling changes and, and, and structure their attack. Is that discussion then just feeding off of that? Has it led or will it lead? And again, one of the questions that came in to you, Freddie, was hyper-specialization. How much of the T20 bowling attack in this dispensation is about a specialist guy who is able to mainly contribute in one phase of the game and, as you said, not so good in another? Or are we looking for multi-skilled? Yeah, look, Um, I I personally feel that 
if you've got someone that is exceptional um, in a particular role in the innings, mm-hmm. he's a lock for me. He's he's a player that you want in your side, uh, whether he be a, a, a new ball specialist like a Jason Berendorf, who you mentioned, Freddie, who is not renowned for his death bowling, but he's got an incredible strike rate with the new ball. And that also leads to the fact that he's played majority of his of his home games at a venue where it swings, which is the Wacker in Perth. So again, that goes back to you know making sure you're making the right choices at the selection table uh, and making the right choices on game day, making sure that he bowls the first over. So if it's still swinging by the third over, he's still getting the the the, the window of the ball. Uh, swinging quite sharply into the uh, into the right hander or away from the left hand batsman, uh, but again with a death bowler or a specialist spinner, if the spinner can't bowl at the end, can't bowl so much with a new ball, but if he's someone that can control an innings and have an impact, strike rate impact in the middle of the innings, uh, Amit Mishra springs to mind, uh, the Indian leg spinner. Who's had, who's had an incredible IPL record. He is probably one of the most outstanding middle-over spin bowlers that, uh, that we've seen in this format of the game. Uh, and he creates all sorts of chaos because he can be difficult to get away, but he's got an incredibly good strike rate, which is you know hugely valuable. So to answer your question and to the person that uh, provided that question to you, Freddie, online... Um, I think absolutely. If you've got someone that you know can, can own a particular uh, part of the innings and and really influence that 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 section of the innings, he's he's worth his weight in gold. I, I think it comes back to and so much of of T Twenty cricket is about this. It comes back to trade offs. If you have a, a guy who is a, very much a specialist in a phase, then you're right, Moose. They've got to be very very good at it because yeah. let's say you've got David Willey, um, who I think is probably someone who's maybe on a little bit of a decline now, so maybe he doesn't quite fit into that category, but he was very good in the power play. But the issue is, if he struggles in the power mm. play, you can't, yes. you, you, it, it creates issues later in the innings because you're not too keen on bowling him later on. Sim, Sam Curran is quite similar, actually, someone who England are looking to kind of replace, I think, David Willey with Curran, um, in that ideally you almost want to give them three overs with the new ball. But if they struggle and if someone gets after them, then trying to bowl their overs elsewhere is problematic. And that's when it comes into questions of, do you have sixth bowlers and seventh bowlers to almost Mm. plug the gaps that your bowlers can't cover elsewhere? Um, So I think, absolutely, yes, hyper-specialists are becoming a thing. I mean, Chahar at Chennai is someone who's done it brilliantly. He basically bowled three overs every single um, match in the power play last season. He did it very well. But the issue is, if he starts to struggle, he's got to be able to adapt and be good in the other phases. And he is improving his death bowling, and that makes him a far more valuable player. And to sort of extend the point, if you do get guys who are what I call top and tailors, they are so valuable because they mm. can you can bank on them in either phase of either power play or the new ball. Off the top of my head, Joffre Archer, Boomer, Malinga, um, these guys who, who you can operate in any phase of the innings and they are exceptionally valuable, but it's very rare to find them. So what you do end up doing is you sort of have someone who takes the new ball and that's their job someone who has the, uh, who's very good at the death overs and maybe a quick who can sort of operate in between. Um, it's about finding that balance and, and fitting the different pieces of the puzzle together. I think just to, just to add to that, Freddie and Bish, I think what I personally feel is that bowlers at some, and you'd like to hear this, Bish, 
bowlers in some cases get the raw deal because what is the difference between your specialist new ball bowler that may have an off day to a specialist opening batsman that all he does is turn up to have an impact in the power play and play that power innings like your Chris Gale or your Aaron Finch or your David Warner, those type of cricketers, and they go missing on that given day, which they do. They don't do it that you know they don't miss that you know that often because they're that good. But when they do go missing, what's the difference between them getting out for next to nothing or chewing up twelve balls and and only scoring five runs against the bowler? Bish, I'll it's let about, you answer that. <laughs> it's a batter's game. It is a batter's game. <laughs> you knew that was coming. <laughs> but you know Definitely. what I mean? That, that, yeah. that, that to me is a valid point. And it's more of a mindset. And I think if from a coaching perspective, if you give that bowler the freedom to know that he's in the same school as the batsman when it comes to we accept failure. We know it's not going to work every single game, but just we're backing your skill and and your specific skill to be able to have an impact throughout the tournament. If it goes wrong, well, we'll make the adjustment. And more often than not, teams that do have those specialists um, do have that backup, Freddie, don't they? They have that sixth bowler that is a bowler that is a bowler of some sort of credibility. Um, so they have got that sort of backup plan um, in place, you very rarely see a, a team go in with a specialist like that with only just five bowlers and that's it. Go ahead, Freddie, go ahead. I, I, I find the power play absolutely fascinating. I think it's the most interesting period of the game for a number of reasons, but it's, I find it so interesting, I think, because both teams are encouraged to attack in a way that um, you know creates... It's a very interesting face-off. So obviously with two fielders outside the 30-yard circle, you're saying to the batting team, go on, make the most of that advantage. But also, as we spoke about, wickets are very valuable in the early overs. So the bowling side also have an incentive to attack. But I actually think, sort of taking it a step back and looking at how teams approach the power play, both teams, both batting and bowling teams generally, have actually adopted a little bit of a cautious approach and we sort of reached a sort of stalemate in the power play. We don't see teams go out really hunting for wickets because I think they fear the consequences of doing so. And likewise, very few teams, KKR are one that spring to mind, teams with Luke Ronke or another, Islamabad United have done it. They really go after the power play. But I think quite often we reach a sort of stalemate where a lot of teams are quite happy to have 45, 50 for one or two wickets, and that's quite that's about the average score in, in C20. I think there's value to be had if a team goes, if, either from a batting perspective and using pinch hitters a bit more often, or from a bowling perspective and hunting for wickets a bit more often, because we know there is an advantage to be gained there. I'd like to see teams do that a bit more often. I mean, if you're a new ball bowler and you try and, and Bish, it'd be interesting to know your thoughts on this. If you're tasked with going out and taking early wickets, you pitch the ball up and you're driven three times through the covers for four. That's 12 runs. You're le- I, I think a lot of bowlers then are less likely to try and push it up there again and, and take that wicket. But as um, the analysis that we've done at Crickvis and that chart that I was talking about shows, a wicket early on is worth around 12 runs. So if you can keep getting that ball up and find that breakthrough, it's worth it. Um, obviously, if you continue to get hit through hit through the infield for four, then you know you have to sort of make a trade-off. But I, imagine, I think bowlers quite often are a little too early pull their lengths back and are afraid of being taken on. And maybe that's to do with sort of 
um, the mindset associated with the power play. There's only two fielders out. It is quite scary if you like to push the ball up there. But early wickets are so valuable. And that's why, for me, Shaheen Shahafri, who I've spoken about before on this podcast, I absolutely love him as a bowler. I love watching him because he's not afraid to do that. No, I would agree with the attacking mindset. And unfortunately, I'm on this podcast with Tom Moody, whose attacks as he's built up, as we looked at Sunrisers Hyderabad, some people call it a bowling T20 team, but Tom's teams generally have been based around players like Rashid Khan, et cetera, et cetera, who will take wickets. And I do think, I think that some batsmen are so good now that, you try to bowl defensively in a power play. I don't know how often that will come off. I think they'll get on top of you anyway. So I think the concept of building it around wicket takers is absolutely vital. And if we move that to the middle phase of the innings, one of the things I was fascinated with in 50 over cricket, if I may just draw on that for a little while, was the growth of people like um, the fast bowler who comes into the middle and just bangs the ball into the pitch, uses the short ball aggressively. Uh, Lucky Ferguson for New Zealand and how well he did it in last year's World Cup. Freddie, I think you made a note on people like Jofra Archer who are able to express themselves in a way and exploit frailties in batsmen. How critical now is the growth of that type of bowler? Well, I th- one thing we spoke about early on in uh, episode two or three of our podcast where we sp- spoke about constructing a batting order was how in the middle overs period, there is more spin bowled. Um, I think 70% of overs in that period are bowled by spinners. And so generally there's a focus on having batsmen who are strong against spin. I think what we've seen in the last couple of years is a reaction to that. And that role of what I'd call an enforcer, the likes of Lockie Ferguson, Pat Cummins, Joe for Archer bowling more in that phase because the batsmen that are batting in that phase are actually a little stronger against spin. They're hard runners. They're maybe not so good against those sort of aggressive hard lengths. And what we're seeing now is teams respond to that and saying, okay, I'm going to pick someone like Lockie Ferguson. You might bowl one over in the power play and then two, possibly three through the middle or one at the death, but target players who are weaker against high pace bowling, but stronger against spin. So it's sort of, this is a constantly evolving conversation. And we've seen the same thing happen with spin bowlers bowling in the power play more and more because the batsmen who bat at the top are big, strong hitters who like to hit through the line. It's a constantly evolving conversation where one thing will happen and someone else will come back with it. And I think we've seen a rise of good players of spin in the middle overs. And now we're seeing Lockie Ferguson, Pat Cummins, Joffre Archer being used in quite aggressive roles through the middle. Yeah, and I also uh, believe that the middle overs are absolutely key to what it's going to look like in the third phase in that in that in that sort of finishing when those finishing overs so wickets are so important so whether you've got that enforcer type pace bowler or whether you've got your best spinners on to me that's a it, a lot of people sort of say it's a, a bit of a lost phase in the game that middle phase where i think it's a complete opposite because i I feel that phase, the middle phase, a critical phase to what it's going to look like in the last four overs. And if you're not taking wickets and setting up as a bowling unit, setting up those closing overs, it's going to get ugly. So those middle overs, 
by restricting runs, creating opportunities to take wickets with your enforcers, whether that be your Rashid Khans of the world or your Lockie Ferguson's, whoever it may be, are absolutely critical to that. You made the point when we spoke about batsmen, about Virat Kohli being someone, and the likes of Virat Kohli and Rohit Sharma being, if you enter the death overs with those players set, you are in huge trouble. Yeah. So that's why it comes yeah. to taking wickets in the middle being critical. Yep. What do the numbers say, just sorry, on Freddie? What are the numbers saying? Because it's such a batting-dominated game, T20 cricket, or moulded in that fashion from the start. Guys are looking to launch onto the front foot generally and smack it everywhere. The guys playing the horizontal bat shot, how many excellent players are coming through the middle phase of an innings compared to maybe guys who are playing spin well? Well, yeah, I mean, th- yeah, this, so this is a, a really interesting sort of dynamic about, we talked about having, well, we sort of touched on the, the need to have different types of um, bowlers. And, and by that, we've spoken about maybe right arm, left arm, leg spin, off spin. I think it's important to have bowlers who can do specific things to exploit specific weaknesses. And something we've seen in the last few years is players who are quite strong against spin are often quite weak against hard lengths and sort of balls that are up around their chest region. Somebody springs to mind is Shreyas Iyer, who in recent years has been excellent against spin, but is very vulnerable against those sort of tougher, hard lengths, quick pace into the pitch. And I think that that having bowlers who can therefore exploit certain weaknesses um, is is very important. So, for example, Jason Holder is a right arm quick, and so is Lasith Malinga, but they're not the same bowler in any stretch of the imagination. So, not only is it about having a right arm quick and a left arm quick, it's about having a right arm quick who can bowl aggressive lengths and maybe exploit, as I said, the likes of Shreyasar, who are weaker against high pace and hard lengths, and then someone who can bowl Yorkers. So, the number of like subtypes of bowlers that you're after, um, there, there are so many different ones you want to exploit the different weaknesses and that goes back to matchups and again it's not just about matching up with the bowler type it's the very specific subtype of, of bowler type and um, for example AB de Villiers recently has struggled with faster leg spin that's something that um, you know if you just looked at his raw leg spin stats it's not necessarily obvious but if you then split it out by the pace of the ball you can see that the quicker ones are ones who have caused him trouble so it's about trying to have, you know, cover all of these different bases is the challenge when building an attack. Tom, are, you still, are you still on the hunt for left arm seamers? Yeah, oh, you, you've just taken the words out of my mouth. <laughs> I, I, I think to add to that is, I think if you don't have a left arm option in your bowling unit, uh, I think you're crazy. Um you know, and again, you don't you don't necessarily need just to get one for the sake of it. That the the left armer has to be a credible bowler. <clears throat> you know, and if you can't get out of the draft or the auction, you know, one of the best. Well, maybe you 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 make sure that you know you use that uh, you use those funds wisely elsewhere. But I just like the variation that left armers bring to an attack. Uh, yes, they create. Uh, you know, good matchups. But I also personally believe that because of the angle that they deliver the ball, um, they can be a little bit harder to to step and fetch um, uh, against a against a, a right arm quick. And I'm obviously talking to the matchup to a right hand batsman. I just feel that they can 
hide the ball and and put it in a in an area where it restricts a lot of batsmen to hitting to only about 25% of the field. Are we are we sort of leaning then just to conclude this this phase of the game are we sort of leaning more towards wicket takers because a lot of the discussion that we've had here so far is about guys who are able to exploit weaknesses so are we moving from just economizing on run rates and the general trend is wicket taking already well I, I see it like this broadly and this is a simplistic way of looking at it but i hope it sort of um conveys to the listener how the innings unfolds and that's as we said the power play the focus is on wickets and at the death for me the focus is primarily on run saving in the middle period it's Sounds obvious to say, but it's a bit of both. And you can either go about it by hunting for wickets, say Lockie Ferguson style, aggressive lengths, or um, you, an AJ Ty, someone who I've spoken to about this, you look to take wickets by building pressure. And they're two quite different things. Either you're Lockie who's hunting for the wicket every ball, or you're AJ Ty who's thinking, if I just keep building pressure here, don't concede boundaries, like it build up some dot balls, give him singles, they're going to do something stupid. And there are two ways of going about it. And I think ultimately how you do it depends on the bowlers you've got. And again, it goes back to what Mood said. It's all about the, the tools you have at your disposal. Um, and I think there's no right or wrong way. Again, it's important to stress that. Again, it might depend on venue. It might depend on opposition. But it's a, it's a mixture of the two. But I would definitely say the key thing to, to bear in mind is you don't want to be heading into the death overs with set batsmen because at that point, guys, as naturally, the more balls you face, the data shows it. As your innings progresses, your run rate picks up. For different players, it happens at different rates. Um, but you don't want players heading into the last five, six overs with 25, 30 balls under their belt because carnage will ensue. And Thomas, it's still the last five, six overs now qualifying as death overs? Yeah, I think so. It depends how bad your day is, though, Bish. Sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it can be the last 10 overs. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think most teams tend to have a mindset of uh, around that between six to four. And a lot does depend on your position uh, from a batting point of view. A lot depends on where you're at, how many wickets you've lost, have you got set batsmen in, and that's why the wickets earlier on, whether it be the first phase or the second phase, are really important because that then dictates when they go in overdrive as a batting unit to try to go for those overs of 12 plus. And if you can limit limit their ambition to going into that overdrive gear, um, you, you're going to get a better outcome, aren't you, with, re- with regards to the total that you're chasing or defending. Um, so, yeah, and, and again, this is a, a very specialist phase, isn't it? The, let, let's call it the last five overs for simplicity. Um, well, uh, Freddie, what do you do your numbers by? Last six what? overs? We do last five at Crickvis, oh, but it, okay. there are different ways of there are certainly different ways of looking at it. And some people believe, um, I think the reason Bish asked the question that the death overs are getting a little longer now yeah. because teams are launching sooner, um, which I think is an interesting thought because we're about to talk about the skills that are required in the death overs. If the death overs begin to become longer, and we see this in very high-scoring venues like at Eden Park in New Zealand, often, in fact, in, in, in Eden Park that happened um, recently with England New Zealand, teams went to their death bowling in the power play. 
England were bowling Yorkers and slur balls in the first six because they knew that basically the, the, the balls are moving off the straight and it became all about run saving. Um, and I think we might see in years to come a little bit more of a focus on death overs starting sooner. Um, but yeah, the last five is, is, is what we generally go with at the moment. Yeah, and to, to me, the, the skills required in these overs, firstly and foremostly, you've got to have the will and the appetite for the fight. So your, your bowlers have got to have the mindset that they enjoy the conflict of the death, death overs. Uh, I've seen so often very good bowlers uh, regularly unstuck in those death overs purely because they haven't got the appetite for it. They just think, you know, this is rubbish. I shouldn't have to be bowling to, to these cowboys just clearing their front leg and slogging me whether it be a top edge over short third man for four or six or swiping it over mid-wicket for six. Uh, but there's other bowlers that have got the, the, the mindset and the appetite for that contest, and they love it. And I think that that is number one criteria. You've got to have bowlers at, during that phase that have got the appetite to, to, to be mm. performing in that phase. Mm. Second point is you've then got to have the diversity of the skill. Uh, and to be able to, to generate variation of pace without that being seen or discovered by the batsman is critical. We've, we've seen over the years uh, the very successful bowlers uh, in Malinga, Ty, Andrew Ty, for a number of years with his knuckleball that have uh, Bravo, had a, Bravo, someone who. Bravo, another one. So those bowlers that have got the great change-up of pace create the uncertainty of, of the, the bat swing and the consistency of the bat swing. The, the bowlers that don't have that huge change-up and they're not asking the question from, of the batsman to make the adjustment with their bat swing generally get unstuck. Then the third part is the incredible control to be able to hit the Yorker. Uh, whether that be a wide Yorker, whether that be a straight Yorker, whether that be a, a Yorker at the, at the batsman's heel. Um, and some do that very well. Um, and Malinga has been historically the best by a long, long way at doing that. And there's no surprise that that was something that he had practised for years to perfect. And he's reaped the benefits of that. Just my thought, and it'll be a, then lead on to a question for Bish around that, is agree with the skills you've outlined there. I think um, variety, variation, changes up and down in pace, and the Yorker are obviously the key traits among death bowlers. For me, something that stands out, I think, is if you are slightly down on pace, you have to be, so if you're not a 90-mile-an-hour bowler, your, or maybe high 80s, your margin for error starts to become a lot smaller, and you start as a, you need to really be able to have deception with those slower balls, or pinpoint accuracy. And I asked Bish, how much does pace matter? When you're going for your Yorker, does your margin for error, um, is, is pace integral to your margin for error? So if you're a slightly slower bowler, say low 80s, and you miss your Yorker fractionally, are you likely to be more in trouble than if you're, you know, uh, you've got an extra yard of pace? Because instinctively that fills the case. Um, pace is integral to giving yourself a bit more breathing room. Oh, that is a really good question. Um, I think, to me, I've always looked at the Yorker as, I've always heard people say, well, you have to be bowling at high pace um, to have an effective Yorker. And I've always argued that, no, the accuracy of that 
is more important than anything else because I'll take someone like a, maybe a Dwayne Bravo, for example, who slow ball gets a lot of the rep and the applause and the plaudits, but he had had to learn to bowl a good variational yorker. So I think even at 83 miles per hour, as compared to 90, you miss your 90 miles per hour yorker pace might end up giving you a little bit of a blight, as we would say in Trinidad. But I think batsmen are so good now that you still pay a high price. So, Freddie, for me, yeah. I still think the, the accuracy of it and the consistent accuracy of it, if it's good, it's good, regardless yeah. of that piece. Yeah. I don't see any numbers yet. And you can make me sound like a total fool to contradict that um, in the ears of thousands. Yeah. Well, I mean, just I mean, the, the one thought I'd add to that around the Yorker is, without a doubt, the best ball to bowl at the end of the innings is the Yorker. I mean, it's probably Still. the best to bowl. Yeah, th- 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 so if you land your Yorker at the death, you're going at around six runs and over. And if you miss your Yorker, or if you bowl any other lengths, you're talking eight plus. The, the really interesting thing, of course, with the Yorker, and this is why it's such a high-stakes delivery, I guess, is if you get a full toss, or if you, so if you over-pitch and it's a full toss, or if you're under-pitching and it's a half-volley, you're going at probably tens. Um Whereas if you're going, and, and this is my theory at least, and this is something I haven't proven and where I'm looking into it, we've looked into it over a while at Crickviz, is that your the Yorker is a, is a great option if you feel confident of getting it. If you right. don't, if you don't, I spoke recently to Tim Al Mills on this, who was fascinating. If you don't back yourself to hit your Yorker and if you don't hit it regularly enough, it's not worth it because full tosses and half volleys are so expensive. And Tim Al Mills is fascinating on this because he doesn't back himself to hit his Yorker that often. He just says, I, I'm not very good at it. And we look, I looked at his numbers and what he does instead is he bowls consistently back of a length and he changes his pace a lot, bowls a lot of back of the hand slower balls. And then he obviously has a high change up and he can hit really good speeds. Now, he's an extreme of almost a different method. And I think on our tracking data, which isn't every game he's ever played, but it's a lot of them, he's only bowled about four or five Yorkers across three or four years of T20 cricket around the world at the depth. Instead, he just opts for back of a length. And I think it's something that if you're, the, the data at least suggests, unless you're very confident of nailing the Yorker, then maybe you shouldn't go to it as often as you do because the full toss and the half volley are, well, they're, they're, they're cannon fodder at that, at that level. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Again, it's it's playing to your strengths, isn't it? And if you're backing a bowler to be bowling at that phase in the last few overs, you've got to allow them to express themselves to their strengths and basically live by the sword, they die by it. And you're both doing that because you've given him the responsibility to do that because you're backing him with his method, whether that's Mills's method or whether that's Malinga's method, which are two different methods, but you've got to, you've got to put total trust and, and uh, backing that player in executing it on that day. And as we know, even Malinga's gone for plenty at, in the death overs from time to time, but more often than not, he's proven over time to be an absolute lock where he, you know, he gets it right more often than not. Let, let me throw this one out there. And, and this is just, just moving linear from, from that point. Because franchises, Tom and, and, and Freddie, are, you're heading to maybe Big Bash and then later on you're heading to the IPL as a coach or an analyst and you're heading then to the CPL. So you're jumping around leagues there'll be listeners, young listeners out there asking, coach, analyst, how many 
deliveries do I need to practice to get that yoker or that slower delivery? Let's let's keep it at two. At what age can I start my development in looking to perfect that? And should I only be looking to be a specialist in that specific area? And Tom, how much variation do you add with players? You've got a good death bowler. How much work do you put in with him to try to become, let's say, a good middle phase or a good power play bowler? Is it advisable? That's a good question. Um, I I think again it depends on the type of bowler that you're referring to. If you've got mm-hmm. if you've got a bowler that's uh, has got the natural art uh, of swinging the ball, mm-hmm. I would never want to I'd never want to steal that from him. Right. Um, you know, because there's no point, uh, you know, suddenly trying to turn him into something that he that he's not for one, but for two, turning him away from what is a rare skill in itself. Not every bowler can swing the ball. Uh, they don't have that natural wrist position. They don't have that great, uh, you know, gather and follow through to enable to get that late and uh, consistent swing. So if you've got a swing bowler, I'd be very careful to the way I would encourage him to develop to be uh, more effective in short form cricket. So therefore I would position him to be taking more ownership in the first half of the innings right? and not focusing so much on Yorkers, but focusing on maybe developing a really effective slower ball with the art of swing. But if you've got a tearaway quick that just generally angles the ball into the right-hander, yeah, by all means, you know, that person's never going to be your classical swing bowler. So therefore, well, how can I add value to what you already have? What he already has is raw pace. So let's harness that pace. I want you to continue to bowl fast, but to add to that, well, let's, let's learn to be able to knock someone's stumps out of the ground. A bowler that springs to mind who you've got a soft spot for, uh, who we've seen a lot of recent times, is O'Shane Thomas. Mm. Someone that can bowl fast. He's someone that can get the Yorker in as well and be effective and knock, you know, batsman stumps over. Um, and and then introduce the slower ball uh, in a, not, not in a, a hectic way where you must be able to do this, you must be able to do that, but let's just develop that slowly so you've got that 90-mile-an-hour ball and then you can suddenly trick your, you know, you set up your batsman with that 75-mile-an-hour slower ball. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, okay, so phase development of certain skills, but from a coaching point of view, really knowing what to touch and what not to touch is yeah. always a fascinating discussion and maybe the hardest thing about coaching. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And and it's, again, it, the conversation goes both ways, where, it, it, you know, the, the, the whether it's a batsman or whether it's a bowler, in this case we're talking bowlers, you need to understand what they're wanting to get out of their own game. Where do they mm. see themselves? Who, who is mm. it they sort of picture themselves, you know, being in the next two to three uh, years and you help them navigate that journey give them the, the the skills or give them the 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 opportunity to develop those skills over that period of time now the, 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 there's nothing worse than seeing uh, a bowler get sabotaged uh, by a coach trying to turn them in something to turn them into something they're not mm. Mm. Um, 
and taking away that natural flair, taking away that natural skill. You know, just imagine if suddenly with Malinga they tried to get his arm up higher as a young kid. You know, Malinga wouldn't have had this, you know, incredible trailblazing career that he's had if if at the age of 15, 16, he was, you know, encouraged to try to bowl it at 11 o'clock instead of at 9 o'clock. Mm. I mean, just just to add a little bit on that, and obviously, you know, moves very much coming up from the coaching side. From, from an analyst perspective, I think, and something we mentioned earlier in, in the show, is I think the game is evolving in a direction of more and more specialism. Specialist. And by that... Um, I mean, guys who are, as we said, experts in the power play or experts at the death. And we've seen, you know, Chennai provided a really good example of that. And I mentioned Chahar being their power play guy. Bravo sometimes isn't introduced in the attack until after the 10th over. So you've got two guys there basically operating in entirely different phases of the innings. Now, from a um, skills perspective, I would think it's best for the player to just become very good at their first primary skill, nail that skill. So in Chahar's case, don't make sure you don't lose that ability to swing the ball both ways. Pitch the ball up, be aggressive. In Bravo's case, the slower ball and the Yorker, they're the skills they need to nail. And as you start to focus on other skills, unless you're exceptionally talented, unless you're a Jofra Archer or a Jasper Brumra, who are essentially freaks, it's going to be very hard for you to become a truly elite bowler in both phases. They just simply aren't very many of them. We talk about we spoke we did a podcast earlier and. Um, a few months ago about all-rounders and guys who were genuine all-rounders and we could count them on sort of one hand. Guys, for me, I think, who I would be very happy bowling at the power play and at the death. Again, there are probably only half a dozen, maybe a few more than there are genuine all-rounders, but they're rare. And that's because essentially you're asking them to do you know, almost completely different. They are different skills, you know, pitch the ball up, swing it both ways, land your Yorker and, and nail your slower balls. Trying to do both of them is hard. So, yeah, I think, you know, focus and specialise in the thing that you are good at. Um, and hopefully learning the other skills doesn't compromise that. And you're always going to, I mean, Chahar, India are keen to get him bowling more at the depth. And I think he's got better at it. I think he took a hat-trick in a T20 International a lot long ago and he returned superb figures. And maybe he's someone who will evolve into a top and tailor, a bit like Boovey did for a while, but Boovey's death over his numbers for a bit have dropped off too, and you hope that he'll bring it back. I'm sure he will. He's a bowler of such quality. But that his struggle, I suppose, Boovey's struggle a little bit, illustrates the challenge of being very good in both phases of the game. Mm. The, the, yeah, other thing which we, the other thing which right. we haven't uh, touched on is, sp sp well, we have a little bit, spin versus pace. In my yeah. view, mm. I don't have an issue with <laughs> spin bowling at any phase. No, agree. Uh, and I think for so long, and you still see it with some approaches, there are teams that protect the spinners in certain phases, of, and particularly the death overs, but there are certain phases that, that they protect them where for some reason it seems more damaging when a spinner gets smashed around for three or four boundaries in an over against a, a pace bowler. Uh, I, I think the numbers will back up that spin is probably not far away from pace in its effectiveness with economy and strike rate in all the three phases against pace. I'd like Freddie to delve into that because I, I do remember when that discussion I've, I've lost, came up. I've, I've lost moods. He's just dropped out. Has he? I had him there for a minute. I had, yeah, yeah I had him. I'm oh, here. I'm still there for me. Yeah, I'm here. 
Yeah, I mean, I do you reckon we can do? Sorry, when you started answering the spin point, I completely lost you. I don't know if we'll still oh. have it on the recording or not. Sorry. Um, if you want to just, you went from when you said, I'm happy with spin bowling in all three phases for the next 30 seconds, I didn't have you at all. I don't know if. Yeah, we, I'm sure we'll do you have make, Yeah, you do that again and then we'll go into what you, what you were asking okay. me. Sorry, mate. Oh, it's always hard <laughs> the second time around. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. I'll be there if it is, we'll use the original. <laughs> yeah. I personally don't have a, a huge issue uh, with regards to spin playing a role in any of the three phases that we've talked about. Um, yeah, we've talked about how effective spin can be in the in the power play at times and uh, particularly in the middle overs. But I think there's a lot of teams steer away from using spin towards the back end of the innings, where I feel, that in particular with certain matchups, certain venues, the spin is by far the most effective option. And I, I, I'd be interested to hear, Freddie, uh, with regards to the numbers, to how spin stacks up against pace over the three phases, I'd be surprised if there's a, an alarming difference between either of those two with, with regards to economy or uh, strike rate. Yeah, well, no, there, there isn't. Um, I mean, in fact, spinners are... Uh, we, we spoke about this in our first or second episode about... We, we spoke about spin bowling in T20 cricket and why it's so successful. And in every single over of the innings, except, I think, the 20th, when very little spin is bowled, spin is more economical um, and it just split across phases um, here. We've got so in the in the power play, the the quicks go at 7.74 runs and over. Spinners 7.31, so spinners more economical. In the middle, quicks 7.86, spinners 7.08, so significantly more economical. And at the death, quicks 9.36, spinners 8.17. Now that's since 2017. Um, and in terms of strike rate, quicks are just a little bit ahead um, in all three phases. Uh, but it's basically the same. Um, and then this comes back to something we spoke about in that episode. And we concluded our episode on spin bowling by saying we thought there should be more spin bowled in the coming years. Mm. Uh, and there probably will be. Um, just two words of caution or a word of caution around specific, particularly the death over numbers. Very few spinners do bowl at the death. And the spinners that do bowl there are the very best in the world. Mm. So Rashid Khan, Sunil Narayan, Imran Tahir, guys who are brilliant um, in that phase, bowl, spin in that phase. Um, and so just a word of caution, I suppose, about extrapolating that out. And if you're, a, if you're a, a team who hasn't got an elite spinner, that doesn't necessarily mean your spinner will be very economical in the phase. I think they probably will be for a number of reasons. And if you go to, back to the first podcast we did, listen to the reasons why spin is more economical. Um, and I think it's quite similar to why spin works in the power play. The guys who bat in those two phases, the power play and the death, often share a lot of similarities. They're often quite big, powerful players who like to clear the front leg, hit through the line. Um, and they generally also practice hitting quicks more because they think they'll face more of them. And that's fair enough because they do. So there is sort of an element of poker there to it. If you can, you know, sort of um, if you bowl spin to them, they're going to be less ready for it, if you like. Um, I think we have seen the number of spinovers in both the power play and the death increased recently and we'll see that continue to rise but I don't necessarily think it's a foolproof 
you will your spinner will always be more economical because it's important to know as i said who's been doing the bowling in those periods but um yeah more spin uh, at, at the death i'm fully in favor of i think it makes sense taking the ball off the straight and slowing the pace down is always going to prove difficult to hit out of the ground yeah i was going to ask you to explain that because if the numbers are so obvious and you've gone into it if the numbers are so obvious and moods and the freddy wild uh responsible for the Trinidad and Tobago Titans in the next T20 tournament. Uh, what type of spin, or is it just any spin? Because coaches will be listening to this somewhere and thinking, really? That is not my experience with my off-spinner bowling to Mahindra Singh Dhoni at the back end. Well, I think there's a key a key point there. Um, and there's a distinguish, you need to distinguish between um, types of spinners, and that's not just wrist spinners, and finger spinners, which is the traditional. Right. For me, there's a three-way split. There's wrist spinners, um, and it, within that, there's some wrist spinners who bowl more googlies than others, but let's call right. it wrist spinners. There's then finger spinners, and by finger spinners, I'm not saying Ravi Ashwin, Sunil Narayan, and Mujib. For me, they're mystery spinners. They're, right. they're guys who will turn the ball away from the bat, whether it's a right-hander or a left-hander, whether that be with a carom ball or a doozra or an off-break or a traditional... Well, their slow-left-armers don't really have one that goes the other way. And then there are finger-spinners, guys like Nabi and Shaqib, who have one that goes straight on and then one that turns away. And I, for me, although I think they're probably slightly underrated bowlers too, um, more generally, um, they're often players who are deployed to exploit matchups. So if you've got a right-hander heavy team and moves those two exact players of what you did with Sunrisers, if you're playing a right-hander heavy team, you're more likely to play Nabi, uh, or sorry, Shaqib and spin the ball away. And left-handers, you want Nabi turning the ball away again. Um, so I think it's very important to distinguish between um, your Narines and Ashwins and then your Nabis <clears throat> and Shaqibs because um, the mystery guys have got more variations. Yeah, just to, just to sort of add to the 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 left arm and right arm the strength of it is not only their ability to turn the ball away but it's the angle that they release the ball that can beat both the inside of the bat and the outside of the bat so if they're turning it obviously it's beating the outside of the bat but they've got the ability to disguise the one that goes straighter that beats the inside of the bat and then traps you know their batsman lbw so that's why they're so effective with those matchup strengths, but I, I think that there are. I think this discussion again highlights how valuable your elite spinner is, and there's a number. There's a few of them, but there's not a. The well is not full of them. There's a handful of them. Uh, you've mentioned most of them in uh, in this discussion, Freddie, and there's a number of other spinners that step away a fair way below that and it's purely because they don't have the the mystery they don't have the edge the the elite ones have yeah and i think and i think um the 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 guys that goes back to and you know, navi and shakib and the talk about playing some matchups goes a bit back to the squad construction and at the draft table you want to have options so that you can exploit the different matchups so when you're pulling your attack together uh, much like when you're pulling your batting order together, you want right-handers and left-handers and strong players of pace and strong players of spin. You want to make sure when you're building your squad that you've got your different types of bowlers. Um, and you've got, and I think quite often off-spinners and left-hand spinners are used in a sort of interchangeable way. Uh, we saw Mumbai Indians use giant Yadav in that way. And in fact, after the auction last year, 
they traded Yadav from Delhi in a post-auction trade, and they're very rare. But Mumbai looked at their squad and realised that they were missing one thing, and that was an off-spinner. They brought Yadav in, and he played a couple of games and did well for them. Um, so it shows the need just to have... Their, these guys are the ultimate role players. They'll play two or three games maybe a season sometimes, but when they come in, they fulfil a very specific role, and that, that, that's something you've got to consider when pulling your squad together. All right, guys, we'll, we've gone into a fairly deep discussion there. We'll have to leave it there for now. Thank you very much once again for listening. I want to ask you guys one day whether you guys do sleep at all or whether this sort of study in, in coaching and numbers sort of encapsulate almost your entire existence because it seems like a chess game that continues to evolve all around the park. Thank you very much, Tom and Freddie, for your valuable insight. And I hope that our listeners are treated to something special. And as always, Freddie, the last word is yours. And Modes, can't wait to see you in the Caribbean. Glad to hear that you're flying out. Yeah, yeah look forward th- to th- it. Th- thanks for listening, guys. Um, please leave a review and, and a rating um, and spread the word on Twitter and, and, and various platforms. But I uh, hope you've enjoyed the show. <laughs> <laughs>